kick. Tony on the run. Still up on his feet. Tony has a wall. It's another block. Tony inside the 20. Tony still going and he's down to the five. Butker up. Got it. Here we go. Hurts has all day. Now some rushers come. Going to throw it as far as his arm can take it, which is well short. And the Kansas City Chiefs have won Super Bowl 57. Quickly off the deflection. Nails the three. Makes up 23 to 8 with under five to go in the first. Hart tucks it, drives. The layup's good. Josh Hart to the front of the rim. Nicks up by 19. Six games over 500. Final score in Atlanta. Knickerbockers 122 and the Hawks 101. Hughes breaks up the entry, following up his Vesey pass for the side of the score. Our Timmy Panarin set up by Jimmy Vesey. And just like that, the Rangers have taken a 2-1 lead. But here's Ivanajet. Panarin, empty net for the hat trick. And I think DJ Seppi got a piece of it. But Ivanajet scores on the rebound. You're listening to another edition of Sports Today with Peter J. Here's your host, Peter J. Mulroy. Man, I'll tell you what, that little connection there with Jimmy VC playing really well lately for the Rangers and then Artemi Panarin, Panarin on those one-timers, I mean, that's the stuff of old. That's vintage bread, man. What we saw uh, a couple of nights ago, Rangers riding a seven-game win streak following Friday night's come-from-behind epic victory in Edmonton. Later, uh, we'll get into the NHL scene. Going to talk some Knicks and NBA. Knicks in sixth right now in the Eastern Conference, so they'd be removed from that play-in tournament nonsense that will feature 7, 8, 9, and 10 in the East come postseason time uh, as they go into the All-Star break. We're coming out of the Super Bowl, so everybody's getting over their Super Bowl hangovers. Now we can get into the offseason. What's going on with free agency? Potential players moving on moving to new homes, who stays, who goes, right? And that's how we're kind of going to start today's broadcast. There's been so much going on the last week plus, which really isn't always the case when you come out of the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is generally the focus, and that was a great game, right? Patty Mahomes, Jalen Hurts playing good football, and in the end for the Eagles, it just wasn't enough. They just ran out of time in a 38-35 game. It happens. I mean, that was a classic football game. And I know everybody wants to talk about the Bradbury penalty. It was a penalty. Guy admitted to it himself. Guy had an all-pro season. So we're not going to start railing on him, obviously. Especially after he himself said, yeah, I held. It was a penalty. It's part of football. So the conspiracy theorists can go back onto their rocks and, and be miserable where they exist. It was a great football game. Two of the best quarterbacks in the league. And Patrick Mahomes. Now, you know, Brady's retired. Torch has been passed. It's Mahomes. Dude's a stud. If he needed to prove anything, which to a normal, rational, sane person who watches football, he didn't. But the way he played in the fourth quarter was legendary with those two touchdown passes to basically win that game. 
There just isn't anyone in football who's on that guy's level. And he did it a couple of weeks ago on one freaking leg in the AFC Championship game after getting knocked around by a really good Jags team the week before where he actually had to exit the game and then came back. So the football season ends on a, a super high note. I guess not if you're an Eagles fan, but it was a hell of a season for Philly. And now you get into the offseason. You'll see some coaching moves, some coaching changes, right? Case in point, Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator of Kansas City, no more. He moves on to Washington, where he's going to take the same post with a promotion. He's going to be the OC in Washington and the associate head coach. A new path for him. What more really could that guy do in Kansas City from a play-calling perspective? He did a great job working with Mahomes. Now we'll see how different it is, because it's going to be different for Bieniemy. Being a Carson Wentz. Terrell Heineke, whoever it might be that he's working with, draft pick, free agent signing. Because you got a lot of free agents going for interviews, right? Derek Carr meeting with the Jets this week or the upcoming week. He's, he's scheduled his uh, the meeting with uh, Jets brass. Perhaps that is a match. Jimmy Garoppolo moving around. The chaos that is surrounding Lamar Jackson's future in Baltimore or perhaps elsewhere. Seen the name Jameis Winston uh, floated around from time to time. Be new looks in Denver. Can they get the situation with Russell Wilson figured out? So the offseason is going to be interesting. Plus, if you're a New York local, if you're a New York fan, because again, this show obviously is national, but it's got a New York flavor, New York based with the Giants. Daniel Jones, Saquon Barkley, one or both come back. And Jones is the, is the priority especially after the season he had. He's the priority. You lock up your quarterback if you're convinced that you have the guy. You got to make that happen. Saquon Barkley, it's going to come down to price. Can't see that guy getting anything less than 14 mil a year. Would be an interesting pairing if he went to potentially, say, a Chicago, who you got to figure is kicking the tires, to match him up with someone like Justin Fields. Wouldn't that be a dynamic backfield? But I think the Kansas City Chiefs have proven, have they not, that you don't need that preeminent, high-priced, flair running back to win a Super Bowl. Pacheco, McKinnon, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire went healthy. I mean, Kansas City didn't really do it with the sexiest backfield, right, folks? And they won a Super Bowl. Because what do they have? They have, well the best quarterback in football, but weaponry around him, reliability at the tight end spot, right? Travis Kelsey could easily go down as one of the greatest tight ends in the history of the game when it's all said and done. Reliable weapons on the outside. Valdez Scantling, Juju Smith-Schutcher, whose uh, career has basically been resurrected since the move to Kansas City. So if you can get a supporting cast of legitimacy around a quarterback because nobody in the league's got Mahomes. Burrow's great. I'm a big Lamar Jackson guy. Justin Herbert's great. I know you've got these really, really good quarterbacks there. And Daniel Jones on that level doesn't necessarily have to be on that level to be successful. But if you get him some support, that'd be pretty damn good. I don't even necessarily think that would need to be a 14, 15, 16 million, 17 million dollar running back either. 
if you can form a good committee back there, like Kansas City did in route to winning a Super Bowl. So we're going to continue to track the NFL offseason, obviously, as we go along. A uh, little after eight, thanks for tuning, a uh, little after 11, I should say, um, on the East Coast. Thanks again for tuning in Sports Today with Peter J. I'm your host, Peter J. Mulroy. Lots to get into today. Um, but I want to start uh, with the passing of Tim McCarver. Uh, earlier in the week on Thursday, passed away at age 81, which was announced due to uh, heart failure. Hall of Fame broadcaster. I mean, you turned on a game that Tim McCarver was on the call for. You knew you were going to get a bevy of information. I mean, the guy was a baseball encyclopedia. Largely due to the fact that, yes, a man of high intelligence wasn't afraid to give his opinion, which really has become a rarity. It's like a lost art in today's world where people are so afraid to say things because of what the perception of them will be after. Tim McCarver didn't care about that. He was going to give you his opinion because that was his job and he was good at it. And obviously you're going to be knowledgeable or if you didn't know this, yeah, sure, it's great. He was a, he was a, a World Series champion. Two-time All-Star, Tim McCarver played in a career that spanned four decades, from 1959 to 1980. Got two titles with the Cardinals in 1964 and 67. You did get those moments of controversy. Everybody likes to highlight what happened with Deion Sanders after he criticized Deion for playing a baseball and NFL game on the same day, yada, yada, yada. But nobody had the knowledge and the depth to go into the game of baseball and break down the game of baseball and bring up and make connections to things that most listeners and followers probably never would have thought of until McCarver himself brought it up. In today's age, you don't necessarily get that. There are some really good broadcasters out there both on a play-by-play and analytical level. You've heard me say it before. My favorite in the game right now is Fox's Joe Davis. I think the guy calls a phenomenal game. He doesn't do too much. He gives you what you need. Obviously, he's got a great voice and he knows his stuff. But there's no really great analysts that stand out to me that, hmm, make me think. Tim McCarver did that. And people are going to have their opinions about how they felt about some of the things he said. But there wasn't an encyclopedia written to the tune of Tim McCarver's knowledge when it came to the game of baseball. Ford Frick Award winner. And obviously, as I mentioned, inducted into the Sports Broadcasting Hall of Fame. But to take his knowledge from the field that saw him play in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Think about that. Four decades for four teams. Played two different stints with the Cardinals, two with the Phillies, and then the Expos and Red Sox. Think about all the things that man saw throughout his career. All the highs, all the lows, all the controversies. All the things he saw that never came to public light. Right? Because you know there's things that go on that never make it out. As much as people like to spoil the fun or rat somebody out, just think about that. Through four decades in Major League Baseball, right, America's pastime, all the things that man saw, and then to bring his ability, right, the gift of the gab, 
into the broadcast booth and share that with the world, that's pretty special. It was a special guy calling a special game. And I don't really, really ever think anybody loved it more than he did. And he was so very, very good at it. And for those listening live, obviously, on Saturday morning, the passing of Tim McCarver at the age of 81 was this past Thursday. Uh, what was later announced that it was due to heart failure. So obviously, condolences out to Shore McCarver's family, but the baseball world as a whole losing uh, a great one. And somebody who had an appreciation, yes, for the game of baseball, for, but for the opportunities that were given to him because of the game of baseball. So Tim McCarver passing uh, earlier this week at the age of 81. Obviously, on this program, we're going to continue to get more and more into baseball. Pitchers and catchers reported to spring training this week across the league. So there's going to be a lot coming up. Some of the new faces in new camps. What are the opening day rosters going to look like? What are those projections? You got fantasy drafts coming up too. I mean, this is, you're coming right out of the Super Bowl. You get a little bit of a lull because now the NBA is in the All-Star break. The NHL just came out of the All-Star break. But now pitchers and catchers report, which is a national holiday for us baseball fanatics. And one of the bigger stories that popped earlier in the week, you had to figure you really had a track on what the Yankees rotation was going to look like, right? Garrett Cole at the top, Carlos Radon, the big free agent signing in the offseason, gives you a really great one-two punch there. Luis Severino was rock solid last year. Yanks protected him, don't want him pitching in the WBC. I get it. And you have to think, so does Severino, right? There's an investment there. And he's a professional baseball player an employee of the Yankees, and they're trying to protect him and themselves there. So I get that. And that's a solid three. Nestor Cortez is your four. I mean, give me give me a better four, uh, four than Cortez with the season he had last year. Reliable. That's a bumps and bruises. And then you were figuring that at the back end of that rotation, you would have the midseason trade acquisition Frankie Montas from a season ago. Now, Montas, I get it. He didn't look good for most of his tenure to start last year with the Yankees. I think we could all agree. Had a nice little stretch there uh, over the summer where he came back from the first injury and pitched to his sub-3 ERA. I get it. But you learn earlier this week that he was banged up. Got some soldier uh, shoulder problems. Okay. Surgery on the table. Not a, not a definitive decision on what the Yankees are going to do. All right, well, where might the Yankees go from here if he's going to be out? Before you could even think about that, you get news that Aaron Boone comes out and says Montas is scheduled to undergo shoulder surgery next Tuesday, and he's going to miss most, if not all, of the 2023 campaign. For someone who doesn't like to hammer guys, I will say that I wasn't an overly big fan of the acquisition from Montas last year at the trade deadline. I know the Yankees were pursuing, like most other teams, who were buyers, not sellers, Luis Castillo, who ultimately went to Seattle from Cincinnati. But I wasn't a fan of the acquisition of Montas last year, which means I'm not now. 
I mean, if this injury continued to linger, now he's having shoulder surgery. You have to figure he's gone. So this might be another one of those moves. I know everybody, and I've seen it in the papers. I've seen it on social media, making the comparisons with Carl Pavano or the Kevin Browns or the Randy Johnson. Johnson gets a bad rap in the Bronx. I don't think it was nearly as bad in the two years that a lot of people like to make it seem. But you're going to get those comparisons to another Cashman blunder at the trade deadline. This one, I don't really argue. I wasn't a fan of this Montas deal. And now the guy's basically useless after not pitching well anyway. And I know Brian Cashman comes out and says the right things. Well, we never got to see him at his best because he was banged up pretty much right after he got here. So we 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 know what we wanted him for, but we just haven't seen it. Well, now you're not going to this year in all likelihood. After the shoulder surgery, it's going to come Tuesday. So what are you looking at if you're the Yankees now? Domingo Herman is, is, is probably the likeliest to fill that role. The Yankees are high on Clark Schmidt. I think they still want him to be a starter until they maybe learn or confess to the idea that the guy might wind up being more valuable in the bullpen. So those are the two likeliest options there. The other thing that you would probably give thought to is might the Yankees be interested in dealing someone like Isaiah Connor falefa and or Glaber Torres to land a starting pitcher. Torres still, from what Yankee Brass says, is very much in their future plans. But might that change depending on what the spring looks like for guys like Oswald Peraza and Anthony Volpe? Volpe, the number one prospect in the Yankee farm system, I think he's ranked fourth or fifth uh, across Major League Baseball as far as prospects are concerned. Would they both potentially be ready to man second and short this upcoming season? If that's the case, perhaps a little bit ahead of schedule. Because we know the Yankees aren't against babying guys almost to a detriment sometimes. Might that then open the door to move someone like Torres? I'm not going to shed a tear if they move on for IKF. You're not going to get a, a, a boatload in return for him. But to land some starting pitching, that might make sense. Because you could never have too much of it. So that was really one of the bigger stories uh, early on as pitchers and catchers really started to migrate to their respective uh, camp locations uh, this week, really starting in the midweek. So we we know that there's going to be a bevy of stories that are going to continue to develop through the spring. Obviously, it's a World Baseball Classic year, um, and there's an earlier reporting date for those pitchers pitching in the WBC. They had a report early in the week by Monday, and those other players can report no later than this past Thursday. So we're underway here. And it's going to be interesting to see how the Cactus and Grapefruit Leagues break down through this WBC, and you're going to get a good look at some of the really good young players across the game this spring. Which will definitely be something that we will have covered here uh, on sports today. goes without saying. Some other housekeeping before we get into the biggest 
chunks of the program today. Uh, it w- wasn't the first time that you've seen family connections on NFL coaching staffs. Brian Dable hired his son, Christian Dable, earlier in the week as an entry-level assistant on the Giants staff. Christian was a student at Penn State the past three-plus years. Uh, and at one point, he was actually signaling in the plays uh, during football games. And this, again, is not something that's totally unusual. You know, Bill Belichick's son, Steve, has been on staff since 2012. Linebackers coach. Matter of fact, the Giants had the connection there with their linebacker coach, Drew Wilkins. His younger brother, Kevin, is the team assistant linebacker coach. So this is not anything that's totally new, uh, but it was pretty interesting to see that the staff continues to develop. Right, So these are the types of things we start to see now coming out of that Super Bowl hangover. We'll obviously be paying a boatload of attention to free agency, and that's going to kind of combine with everything that's gone on with the pitchers and catchers reporting around the scheduling of the World Baseball Classic. Which makes this a little bumpier week than usual, perhaps, following the Super Bowl. Plus, if you're a golf fan, you get the Genesis Open going on at Riviera in California. And it's been fun to this point. I mean, if you've been watching golf this season, I mean, Max Holm is playing out of his mind. And it's been fun to watch, really, from the start. He's the leader through two rounds. Keith Mitchell and John Rahm right on his tail. Colin Morikawa's in the mix. Pat Cantley can never be ruled out. And you've got Rory and Kuchar uh, lurking. Gary Woodland back there. Tiger Woods sitting on the cut line, flirting with it at plus one. And it's amazing. This could only happen if I want to be as respectful as I can. I'll say the last five to seven years at how ridiculous some things get. Everybody knows Tiger Woods has been banged up. He's had a multitude of surgeries, off-course ailments that really hindered his ability to play at the level that he wants to play. Now he's hit some good shots, and he's played well. His putting yesterday was not good. Self-inflicted wounds. He said it himself, when you finish with three bogeys in your last four holes, it's not good golf. I don't care who you are, where you're playing. Especially when you're comfortably in the field heading into the weekend. Near the top, no. Was Woods going to win? No. But he was playing. I mean, guy came right out of the gates on the first hole of the tournament and birdied it. And Riviera, you look at the landscape. It's not the easiest place in the world to play. Some of these guys are so silly long, they make it look easy. But you can make a mess of this golf course around the greens. And if you watched Woods yesterday, it proves my point. My tiger knows his way around a golf course, and he was struggling around those greens. And they're going to have some interesting pins this weekend, I can guarantee you. But the biggest story now coming out of there, with Woods back on the course, playing well. He's plus one after two rounds. But all anybody could focus on was a, was a joking incident between two friends and two very close friends in Tiger Woods and Justin Thomas. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm referencing Thursday's opening round at Riviera Country Club in California. Obviously, the gallery is packed with a Justin Thomas-Tiger Woods pairing. That's must-see TV. If you're a spectator, you want to follow those two major champions. Perhaps the greatest golfer ever, ever to play and one of the best in the world right now in Thomas. 
and they're two good friends, so you know they're going to have fun together. At one point in the round, Tiger smokes one past Justin Thomas off the tee. Okay, it was bound to happen. It's not like Tiger's 95 years old. He doesn't know what he's doing. After proceeding to do so, camera picks up. Tiger Woods hand Justin Thomas something. No one knows what it was, but because technology is what it is today, we find out later that it was a joke. That Tiger wasn't handing Justin Thomas anything other than a tampon after outdriving him. And as clear as day, it said Tampax on it. Now, some of the outlets have gotten so up in arms over that that they're crying like little infants over the symbolism of what that joke means. Now, unless you're a complete buffoon, you know what it is. A joke between friends. I mean, if, if, if there was some type of prison or penalty for making inappropriate jokes amongst friends, I'd be, I'd be doing life in prison. But because now we live in this age of political correctness and wokeness, that people are so easily offended by any and everything, you can't even have fun. I'm sure that's not the first time those two have made reference to one another like that. This time it got picked up by some freaking cameraman on a golf course in California. CNN picks it up. Golf Week. Golf Magazine. Whatever else. Uh, Brandel Chambly's talking about it on, on, on the Golf Channel. He's another clown, by the way. And what do you wind up getting? Is a freaking Tiger Woods apology. Because he probably had enough. That people can't take a damn joke. You got to get offended by every little thing. I asked friends that are females about this. More than a few of them. And they go, the response, collectively, Pete, it's funny. Because that's how the world is. When you're a normal person. When you're a gremlin who enjoys being miserable and enjoys being offended, these things bother you. So Woods has to come out yesterday after not playing all that particularly well and says, quote, it was supposed to be all fun and games, and obviously it hasn't turned out that way. He was saying this to reporters. If I offended anybody, it was not the case. It was just friends having fun. Imagine that. As I said, if I offended anybody in any way, shape, or form, I'm sorry. It was not intended to be that way. It was just we play pranks on one another all the time. And virally, I think this did not come across that way. But between us, it was. It's different. I guess because of who he is, he felt he had it, he, he needed to apologize. I wouldn't have said boo. Are we that far gone as a world that things like this have to bother you? A joke between friends because you have to be some miserable little weasel that you can't laugh at two of the best players you will ever see play one of the most difficult games to play in the history of sports? It's sad. It really is. Social media and, and media as a whole can be a great tool. It's the reason I'm able to 
do this show from my bedroom in the little studio that I set up. But man, can it get out of control. Everybody's got something to say when they've got a when they're sitting in front of a Twitter or Facebook. And that's fine. I'm not immune to that. But stuff like this, where a, a national figure, one of the greatest American athletes we'll ever see, has to apologize for a joke because it offended somebody. And you know what's funny about this? Most of the people that I see are offended by, by the act of Tiger Woods getting out driving someone significantly younger than him and handing him a tampon as a joke. Most of the people that I see getting offended are men. Wow. Wow. Guys, term used loosely, take a step back, pull up your pants, and breathe. It's okay. Because I have to imagine that many of you who are so offended, or you're so woke, or so politically correct, get ready for it. Get ready for it. You've joked with your friends before in similar fashion. And if you haven't, please go back to your cave. There's no more room at the inn. As far as golf is concerned, for those of you who actually have an appreciation for the game, like I do, it's my favorite in the world. You're going to have a hell of a weekend here, folks, regardless of what happens with Woods. Homa playing great. I actually used my free DraftKings bet on Morikawa. Rory lurking. You never count out Thomas. You've got some good names in this field and some good names atop the leaderboard. And man, if, if, if Rory's coming for blood, he's coming. Because nobody drives the golf ball like that guy. Pay close attention to where the pins are located this weekend on these greens and how they set up the tee shots. I think this is going to be great. And going into Sunday on a stacked leaderboard, those final pairings, that's going to create early season PGA must-see TV. This is why it's still numero uno in the golf world. The best golf, the most significant golf, takes place on the PGA tour. Here's Buckner. Pressure coming. Buckner stands in and fires his balls. Intercepted. Gilmore down the sideline. Pick six. Gilmore. 11-point Marshall lead. You wouldn't think, as we shift focus now, after a season in which you lost to a team like Marshall and an underwhelming Stanford club, that Notre Dame would be standoffish as a football program when it came to improving itself in the coaching ranks. Well, what do I mean? Recently, Notre Dame's offensive coordinator, Tommy Reese, or former offensive coordinator, Tommy Reese, leaves to take the same position at Alabama. Okay, fine. I think anybody who follows the college scene, and Marcus Freeman, who will now be in his second season um, as Notre Dame head football coach, has pretty much said it himself. It was He took pride in 
it being his job to not hold Tommy Reese back, but help him prepare for his future to be a head coach. I think everybody knows most of these coordinators, not all, not all do, but most do want to become head coaches in the future. It's progression. It's moving up in your field. So Reese is offered the position at Alabama. It's hard to turn it down. You know, maybe Reese doesn't leave Notre Dame for Alabama if Nick Saban isn't the coach. So maybe Alabama wasn't the draw from South Bend. Maybe it was Saban himself. That makes sense. I don't have to get into the track record Nick Saban has. We all know it. Shortly after that, Notre Dame's offensive line coach, heralded one, Harry Heastan, retires. That stinks. So now Notre Dame's got to replace its OC and its O-line coach. Okay, should not be too much of a problem. You're Notre Dame. You've got a young, charismatic, intelligent second-year head coach. Won nine games, including a bowl game, come from behind bowl game in his first year. Yeah, you had crap losses to Stanford and the Marshall game, which can never happen. Just can't happen. And in the Marshall loss, the reason was bad offense, bad quarterback play. Now you transition to the fact that, okay, Reese is gone, we know that. Harry's gone, we know that. He retired. We've got to make a move. And there's a, a bevy of coaches out there that are available that Notre Dame's looking at. The one that they were targeting made sense. Andy Ludwig from Utah, 58 years old, couple of stints at Utah's done very well there. Anybody who watches the landscape of college football knows how successful Kyle Whittingham, the head coach, and the Utes have been. And Andy Ludwig was a big reason for that. It's cohesiveness. That's a big deal in college sports. You have to have it. Utah does. That's what Marcus Freeman wants. Balance on the offense, balance between the run and pass game with some creativity to be able to feed off what the defense is going to do and wants to do. Notre Dame brings Ludwig to campus. They take him to a basketball game, hockey game, uh, take him out for dinners. This is public. It's on TV. People see this. Then you find out there was something going on with a $2.8 million buyout, which on the surface was a joke. That Notre Dame wouldn't cover the expenses on a $2.8 million uh, buyout after going back a few years, the payout they gave Charlie Weiss just to get the hell out of South Bend. Now, as it turns out, Ludwig wanted to stay at Utah. He felt more comfortable there. That's fine. Same thing happened with Colin Klein, the offensive coordinator at Kansas State. He wasn't ready to leave his alma mater yet. That was Tommy Reese last year, folks. Things like that's okay. That's totally normal. You interview, ah, it's not for me. I'm not ready to leave my alma mater. When Brian Kelly left for LSU, Reese addressed the team and said, I'm not ready to leave just yet. I'm staying here. That's fine. Better opportunity came to him this year at Alabama. He left and took the job, as he's entitled to do. Where Notre Dame made a complete fool of itself was parading Ludwig around on campus, going to these events, taking him out to dinner, sitting next to the coach, putting him on the freaking jumbotron. Whether or not the reason he's not here as the new offensive coordinator because of the buyout is irrelevant when you're parading somebody around on campus. That's public. People see that. And then when you can't get the hiring done, you look like jackasses. And this isn't the first time something like this has happened with Notre Dame. Now, ultimately, Notre Dame hired its tight end coach, Gerard Parker. I have no problem with that. I just used the word cohesiveness. You're going to get that. 
And I understand he was a tight end coach. Anybody's going to look good when Michael Mayer's your tight end. But you got the whole room there that you have to coach. So there's going to be a level of familiarity now with Parker, who was a college wide receiver at Kentucky, coached at Purdue years ago. That's where he started to make the connections with Marcus Freeman when they were both at, at Purdue. Coached at Duke, Penn State, called plays at West Virginia. Offensive coordinator there for a couple seasons as well. So the, the guy knows the college landscape, which is good. You bring that different element in. But it was a complete embarrassment the way things were handled. And my problems with it, as and, and this goes back, not me just being a college football fan, as a diehard Notre Dame fan. Because I'll sit there and watch any college football game, and I'll talk your ear off about it. Eastern Kentucky, Massachusetts. I don't care whatever it is. If it's college football, I'm watching it. But I bleed blue and gold. So when crap like this happens again with Notre Dame that is avoidable and is embarrassing, it pisses me off, as it does most of the Notre Dame fan base. This is a university that says all the right things about investing in a winning culture and winning championships. But the moves they make, or I should say lack thereof, tell a completely different story. You're, you're not going to convince me now. And I think this is even more, I'm even more convinced than it's now since the hiring of Marcus Freeman that Notre Dame should never even think of or have to change its academic standards in order to win football games. Because of what Freeman's brought to that university with his intelligence, his ability to teach, not just coach and recruit. There's some damn intelligent kids out there that are damn good football players that can help this university win a national championship. Notre Dame just saying it, though, is BS when you're not going to act on it. And it's happened for too long. If there was even a 1% chance that Notre Dame was not going to hire Andy Ludwig, why the hell would you bring him on campus for the world to see? I don't care that the report said he ultimately decided that he wanted to stay at Utah. Notre Dame's perceived lack of determination here doesn't sit well. You better have been damn well sure that that man was going to put pen to paper and sign that contract before you started parading him around at women's basketball games. And I think they brought him to a hockey game. Because this is a bad look when you're trying to give support to a second-year head coach coming off a nine-win season. Because I hope to God that nine wins and relevancy just isn't the goal in South Bend. Because now, this just seems like it's another indication that the people running the programs over there in South Bend who continue to embarrass themselves with asinine moves like this are just concerned with being relevant. Andy Ludwig would have been a slam dunk hire for a second-year coach who did a damn good job year one keeping the pieces together following an 0-2 start. How many times I said how pumped. And I said the same thing this year about being a Giant fan. How enjoyable it was to be a Giant fan because of the educational aspect and the way Brian Dable treats those players. It's the same thing with Marcus Freeman. And he's not getting support from the powers that be 
on that campus, and that is shameful. Andy Ludwig wants to stay at Utah, fine. But the, the problem I have, and I'm, I, I'm not the guy who calls for people's heads to be fired. They said this year is finally the year when the, when the men's basketball season comes to a close, and it's been a disaster. Notre Dame's men's basketball program is horrific this year. That it, it's, a, it's a good time to part ways with Mike Bray. Well, what, what about parting ways with athletic director Jack Swarbrick? You know, he said, now, Jack, now is the time to part ways with Mike Bray. I know Notre Dame had a nice little mini run in the NCAA tournament last year. But the time to part with Bray was about five years ago. So it's another indication to me and many loyal, involved Notre Dame fans that maybe Jack Swarbrick and President Father Jenkins are content with just maintaining high relevancy and not attacking the landscape the way they should to win national championships. Because with the way Marcus Freeman recruits and coaches these guys, Notre Dame can do both, recruit that way, and maintain those academic standards to win a national championship. You're not going to convince me otherwise. And you're going to need offensive efficiency, folks. Which is why I could not believe the approach they took in solidifying the offensive coordinator position. On the schedule this year, you got to go to NC State, which always boats the top 15 defense. You got Ohio State coming September 23rd. You got to go to Louisville. You're hosting USC. Pittsburgh is never easy. Then they got to go to Clemson, and they've got Wake Forest coming to South Bend before a season-ending trip to Stanford. And oh, by the way, the year opens in another country. They play Navy August 26th in Ireland. So this is not an easy season coming up for Notre Dame. They never are. But to not have that energy and that drive that the public sees is disheartening. Maybe this was part of the reason that Brian Kelly decided to shimmy out of town. Didn't like the way he did it. At all. But maybe there are some things that BK was right about. And it would really suck if this continued and Notre Dame lost out on a great coach and a great man like Marcus Freeman. Because that guy did a hell of a job year one, and this wasn't exactly a vote of confidence in backing him up. I think Gerard Parker's going to do a good job. And I have no problem with the hire. But Tommy Reese got a big payday from Alabama, and it's a great opportunity. Don't tell me that there wouldn't have been a way if you really wanted Andy Ludwig, who looked like he was close and they took a final swing at him, that you couldn't have gotten that man. Even if he said he wanted to stay at Utah. It's perceived effort, or a lack thereof, from Notre Dame that drives you nuts. And it's another instance where the university has embarrassed itself. You could say all the right things in public, but people see your actions. Words are words. Actions are what matter. And again, Notre Dame has failed in that regard. And it is not the first time. And if I'm a betting man, it won't be the last, which is unfortunate.
Because I'll tell you this, at the end of the basketball season, when Mike Bray walks away, he's not done coaching. If Georgetown moves on from Patrick Ewing, I guarantee you Mike Bray will be their main target. Notre Dame better not screw up that hire. Because they have an athletic director I'm not particularly fond of to begin with. Neither is most of the fan base. And after this malarkey with the offensive coordinator stuff, it's not sitting too well with the, the South Bend loyalists. And with the NFL season just coming to an end, you'll have the draft coming up, free agency. I mean, these are things that now are in the limelight. And Notre Dame is always at the top. Now, the good news for Parker taking over this offense is he's going to get a Heisman legitimate quarterback in transfer Sam Hartman. Kid's a legitimate Heisman contender as soon as he steps on campus. And you've got Tyler Buckner, who was Notre Dame's starter until he was injured, came back and played really well in the bowl game. So Parker's going to have some things to work with. He's going to take over that offense. He's got a good three-headed monster at running back. You're still going to have a stout offensive line room, though they've got to figure out that hiring to replace Harry Haystand. And you've got a wide receiver depth chart that does feature loads of now veteran talent and some young talent coming in. Plus the Notre Dame defense, once again, is going to be very, very good. But the perception of how all of this got, went down again, is a failure on the part of Notre Dame. And things like this continue to happen in South Bend, and it becomes very, very frustrating. With you every week. Sports Today with Peter J. All right. Now that I got that out of my system, because, I mean, obviously, huge news, right? Huge news coming out of South Bend in the college football scene um, that needed to be discussed. But again, thank you for joining me on this week's edition of Sports Today with Peter J. Those listening live, 1147 a.m. on the East Coast this Saturday, February 18th. Great to be with you. We're here every week, same time, same place, right here on Podbean Live. And then all episodes post later to Samsung, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and of course, Spotify continuing to grow. The numbers are going up. Could not have done that without all of you. Let's get into some hockey. Because if you've been watching the NHL, obviously, the Boston Bruins have been the class of the league since day one. Both sides of the ice, dynamic team. They can score. They can defend. But if you've been watching across the East Coast a little closer, down a little bit in the metro area, the New York Rangers riding a seven-game win streak, thrilling come-from-behind victory Friday night in Edmonton. It's a team that was down 4-1 after the first period. You figured the game was over. Igor Shosturkin did not look great Friday night. And the offense was really skating in mud early on 
basically through the first 20, 25 minutes of the game. Pop off three straight to tie the game at four, and it really propelled the blue shirts to pick up the win in overtime. And really, you could you could mention the never say die, this, that, and the other thing. This Ranger team is good, folks, and they're clicking at the right time. Coming out of the little break on both sides. Uh, you know, last night you didn't see Shesterkin at his best. And I know I've been reading a lot about how, you know, he's had his fair share of ups and downs this year. But backing him up, Yaroslav Halak at 37 years old lately has really found his groove. So I think that gives you some confidence there in between the pipes for the Rangers. Because let's let's face it, Shistark is a stud. You know, our buddy Pat Pickens from the, from the game day has been on as our hockey analyst. Says the same thing. Shesterkin had one of those campaigns last year that was so eye-popping that anytime something goes perhaps a little south, it catches on like wildfire. So it wasn't great Friday night in the come-from-behind victory over Edmonton. But one of the reasons the Rangers have been playing so well lately is the power play unit has really continued to evolve. Now, you look at the stats across the league, you would figure that this would be a top 15 ranked power play unit anyway. Right now, I think they're 12th or 13th. But your top group of Panarin, who really continues to play well this season, leads the team in points, uh, just from top to bottom. This is one of the more efficient years he's had in New York. Uh, and then along with Kreider, Zibanejad, Hedl, and Fox, the unit continues to develop as a whole, and you're seeing that every time they take the ice. And one of the interesting things about the second unit, uh, Gerard Gallant spoke to this uh, earlier in the uh, in the week, was kind of teetering with that second unit to back up that top group, where Panarin and Kreider spearheaded with Zabanajad, and then Heedl and Fox on the back end, referred to Keandre Miller and Jacob Truba as interchangeable. I mean, these are like kids having toys. To have that at your disposal, I mean, your power play unit is on a hockey team is essential to having success come postseason time. I mean, as this continues to develop with the regular season creeping closer to an end, Rangers are going to the playoffs. It's just a matter of who and where. But defensively, you know, the Rangers second in goals allowed this season. Matter of fact, they're tied with Jersey. Or they were as uh, heading into Friday night's game. Defensively, they're as cohesive a unit as there is in the NHL. Can that power play unit go from top 12 to top 10? Top 10 to top 7? The more reliable the power play unit becomes, creeping into postseason times, the more lethal you can be. Because you know... The Rangers can score. They had the acquisition of Tarasenko to help back that up. Panarin's had a great year. Kreider's looked great the last couple of nights. And Mika Zibanejad has blossomed into a full-blown superstar. So this is a team that has all the tools coming off a season in which it went to the East Final, lost in six to Tampa Bay. The way they play defense, 
and the ability for them to put the puck in the net. I mean, this is a Ranger team that it's it's fair to take them legitimate now. All right, I'm I'm buying what the Rangers are selling. Seven game win streak at a perfect time. I mean, most teams go down four one after the first period. Maybe hang around in the game. I mean, the Rangers turned it on. You don't want to ever get in a deficit like that, obviously. But they've proven, number one, they can play with anybody this year. I mean, the last time they played Boston, I know they lost 3-1, but they showed metal. And Boston's having one of those campaigns this year where everything is just firing perfectly. They've got good young talent and they've got the veterans who just seem to get better with age. Had that discussion with Pat uh, two weeks ago, as a matter of fact. But I think the combo between the net, which is Sterkin and Halak, and Halak, who's looked a hell of a lot better, you would say probably, oh, the last month, as he's really found his groove at 37 years old. Seven goals allowed on average in the league, that combination. Second best goals allowed defense. And a power play that continues to get better. This is a recipe for a lot of success come postseason time for the Rangers. And you look at the Devils as well. Fifth in the league in goals per game at three and a half. I mean, they're right there with the Bruins and the Oilers. The top scoring teams in the league. So for as good as the Rangers have been lately, Jersey's been pretty steady since they had that 14-game win streak earlier in the year. Especially the way they've been playing lately. From a points perspective since the new year began, they have the most, which is impressive. And it's all the more impressive when you are reminded of the fact that they've been doing this lately during the absence of Jack Hughes. who already has the most points in his career at 21 years old with 67 points, 35 goals, 32 assists. Now he's listed as week to week with the upper body injury. Um, The good news is for Devil Nation that head coach Lindy Ruff expects him to be on the shorter side uh, of the week to week designation, which for New Jersey is huge. Because you're probably looking at, I mean, now at least, First round pairing Rangers-Devils in the postseason. I mean, wouldn't that be extraordinary TV for the hockey diehards? Because I think from top to bottom, yeah, you had the running joke that we had mentioned on the program before about New Jersey dominating the NHL offseason and it not coming to fruition on the ice. This year it has. And it's even more remarkable doing it lately without Hughes. I mean, fifth in scoring since the turn of the new year. They've All they've done is turn it on and keep it on. And they're going to get the 21-year-old back at some point. This is a dangerous team. And it could be real problematic come postseason time. You talk about young-old combo, young player veteranship. Jersey's got it, just like Boston. You're from an Islander perspective, it's been a struggle. You heard Ryan Pollock, if you watched the game uh, the other night, 
five and thirteen in their last eighteen games. Uh, Ryan Pollock saying that it's it's pretty simple. The recipe for us is that we have to play with more desperation, and he's right. I mean, comparatively, if you, if you take the three New York, New Jersey teams, the, the Rangers, Islanders, and Devils, the one team that needs a little more pep in its skates with more desperation has been the Islanders. You know, Sorokin and, Vor- and Varlamov in between the pipes, that is a, is, a, is a bright spot. And lately, it's a lone bright spot. Because what have we talked about over and over with the Islanders, specifically as it related to last season coming into this year? It was their offense. I mean, last year was, was brutal from a goal-scoring perspective on Long Island. This year, the inconsistency drives you nuts. And the streaky play, it's the reason that they're buried in the standings. Sixth in the Metro Division. You know, with mediocre offense, you'd be above that. And Devils second, Rangers third, Islanders sixth. And to have the ability to shut the opponent down because you've got two stalwarts in the net, but you can't score, is frustrating. So anything that happens now, especially even after the Horvat trade, build it for the future there. You know, as far as the Rangers are concerned, too, the, uh, any talks that, you know, Patrick Kane, not going to happen. I mean, he was pretty upset even after the, the recent acquisition with Tarasenko. Um, you were probably looking at a rental there to begin with. Not to mention they play the same position, so you could probably put those to bed as well. Um but just getting back to the Islanders, the type of season, I think, coming in with some of the younger talent that they had developing and knowing what you had defensively, it's been a letdown. It's been a big disappointment. Especially the way they played lately with five wins in their last 19. It's not good. And it hasn't been good. So you get the low in the Islanders and the high in the Devils across the metro area. And then the Rangers, who I think many expected to be playing the type of hockey they've played late on that seven-game winning streak. Around the NHL, you get the news uh, out of Washington, uh, the sad news that Alex Ovechkin's father passed away, uh, his father, Mikhail. I didn't know until I read about it and and, and, uh, heard a little bit more uh, from when Ovi was speaking that his father was actually a professional soccer player um, and a pretty good one until injury uh, cut his career short. Uh, but th- then you learn more about how he had uh, a huge impact on the trajectory of Alexander's hockey career, which, I mean, look at look how that turned out. I mean, one of the goats in the sport. Um, so just some sad news uh, that the Capitals are, you know, expecting uh, Ovechkin, understandably so, uh, to miss some time as he, as he returns home um, to be with his father. The travel uh, issues there exist as well because of open flights from Russia to the United States with the ongoing nonsense between Russia uh, and the Ukraine. So there's some uh, travel intricacies that uh, are being dealt with there as well. Uh, But just some sad news for the Ovechkin family um, and the Capitals as well. And then you you look at what the Bruins, I made mention of the Bruins. First in the league in scoring. Second in total goals scored behind only Edmonton. And then goals allowed at just over two a game. I mean, give me a more complete team right now in the NHL than the Bruins. 
I, I, I think it would be, it'd be, you'd be hard pressed to find one at least now. Does that mean they can't be beaten? No. But the way they're playing, stacked from top to bottom with veterans and then the younger talent, it's impressive. And it's been impressive basically from the opening game of the season. Be interesting to see a team like the Rangers or the Devils get a crack at them come postseason time. Might that happen? That would be great. I think that would be a really good indication of how good some of our New York area teams are when stacked up against a Boston team that has just been going roughshod on the league. Hit subscribe and don't miss the next episode. Sports Today with Peter J. Yeah, just after 12 o'clock on this Saturday, February 18th, Sports Today with Peter J. Thanks for tuning in for those listening live. <laughs> been a great show to this point. And I want to get into some basketball now because what's been happening in the NBA as we go into the All-Star break <clears throat> has really been something, specifically as it relates to the Knicks. Because the acquisition of Josh Hart that the Knicks made a few weeks ago has really been paying dividends. This is a team going into the break, sixth in the East Conference. I said that uh, at the top of the broadcast, which if the postseason started today, removes the Knicks from that silly play-in round uh, between seeds 7, 8, 9, and 10. 7 plays 10, 8 plays 9, uh, and the winners advance to play one another to solidify the field of 8 in each conference. Knicks right now sitting sixth, 33 and 27. And Josh Hart is giving it on both ends of the floor. Now, the thing that was great about the Knicks acquiring Hart, yes, the pairing of his, him and his old buddy, uh, college buddy, Jalen Brunson, more on him in a minute. That was, that was a fun story. That was a great story. You saw how excited Brunson got when he learned the news. But Hart, on the defensive end, being such a good rebounder on a Knicks team that excels in that area to begin with, Right, it's like having offensive linemen and starting pitching. You can't have too much of it. In the NBA, you need rebounders. You need rebounding. And the Knicks got more of it. And then you see Hart also has the efficiency on the offensive end. 27 points a couple nights ago against Atlanta. That's impressive stuff. And when you take the level of play that he's brought to MSG and then couple it with how Jalen Brunson has played, I mean... Who's playing better basketball? And J.J. Redick said it the other night on ESPN, and I agree with him. At a, from a guard position, outside of maybe Damian Lillard right now, better basketball than Jalen Brunson. I would take it a step further if you remove Joker and, and Giannis. I mean, Brunson right now is at the top of the league when it comes to just being sheer dominant. I mean, this return on investment looks like it's going to be more beneficial for the Knicks then certainly the Amari Stoudemire acquisition, right? You talk about some of the big free agent signings in Knicks history, right? Amari, Knicks fans are indebted to him for, for reawakening the garden and making basketball in the garden fun again. It was just a shame that his knees gave out. You know, Julius Randle, for the most part, 
has played well in New York. He's averaging a double-double this year. Uh, I, I, I think we could cut him some slack. Tyson Chandler was a good free agent signing. He wound up being a, a defensive player of the year in the league at one point. You know, the John Stark signing, you know, uh, from the Warriors in 90. Starks got hurt uh, working out with the Knicks while he was still in the contract with the Warriors. So the Warriors didn't want him back until he was healthy. Uh, and he wound up being with the Knicks. The rest is history. So I think if you look at some of the, the biggest free agent acquisitions in Knicks history so far, I mean, this Jalen Brunson is, has been unbelievable. And so enjoyable to watch as what have the Knicks needed for so long a legitimate, pure point guard? You have it now. You have your legitimate point guard in Jalen Brunson. Just like I said, I can buy what the Rangers are selling because I think they can be a legitimate cup contender. I'm buying the Knicks. And that doesn't mean they have to win a championship because I know how good Boston is, Milwaukee. Right, you look out there. Um, Denver right now looks like the class of the West. But with one playoff series win in the last 23 years, do I think the Knicks have enough talent to win a round? Or maybe even more come this postseason? I do. And it's because they have that combination again. You've got your pure point guard in Jalen Brutson. You've got the ability to go inside. And Julius Randle can come out as well and shoot the ball. He's got range. He's a good rebounder. Emmanuel quickly. I like what he's brought. McBride plays great defense. Might be the team's all-around best defender. Quentin Grimes went healthy. I mean, doesn't he look good when things are, qu- are clicking? I know the fan base still frustrated with everything with Obi, Obi Toppin. But I think the most frustrating aspect of this Knicks team, and you know, I'm not reinventing the wheel by saying this, has been R.J. Barrett. Regressing. You know, Barrett is struggling this year, and it's not just a visual thing that, that you can see as a fan or even an analyst. It's in the numbers, too. Finishing at the rim seems to be a real problem for him especially this year, which begs the question, might the Knicks be regretting that four-year, $107 million extension they gave him in September? Remember, he was the number three overall pick a couple years ago, and he just gets the extension at 107. That's a significant investment. It's even more significant when you remember that the other teams were told no when wanting to include him in trades i.e. Donovan Mitchell. You would have to think that there may be some element of regret on the part of the Knicks. Because for imagine if that was able to solidify itself, how dangerous this team could be. But it just hasn't happened. Hart, Brunson, and Randall lately have been playing so well together. By the way, Jericho Sims, the youngster, 
inside, banging bodies, both ends of the floor. I like what he's bringing to kind of piggyback what Isaiah Hartenstein gives you because long-term future with Mitchell Robinson, at this point, who knows? So at least you still have some interior presence there. And Sims has made the most of his opportunity and he's been fun to watch. But the Barrett thing is is frustrating and, and, it, and it's okay to, to feel that way because it is. But to get back to my initial question and really the driving focus of this show, which was focusing on the question, are the Knicks and the Rangers legit? In my opinion, they are. Rangers have won seven in a row, took down some good teams in the process. It's their second seven-game win streak of the season. This team is legitimately cup good. I don't have to I can say in the same breath that the Knicks are a good team and that they're not going to win a championship. That's okay. So long as there's the steps toward that in the future. Brunson was step one, and it was a hell of a move. Because now the, the Knicks are going to the playoffs in some capacity. You want to stay out of seven to ten. You want to stay out of that. Right now, they're sixth. And it's going to be fun to see where they go, what the trajectory is coming out of the break. I'm excited. I'm buying what they're selling, just like I am with the Rangers. Crosstown, you got the Nets. They move on from Katie and Kyrie. Uh, we know that by now. And it's obvious that both had immense talent, right? There's no question there. But can't you kind of see this being a positive for Brooklyn? Because throughout the careers, Durant and Kyrie have really been about themselves. And they have had no interest in helping build franchises long-term. So the headaches are gone in Brooklyn. As they build for a different future, while still maintaining relevancy and competitiveness, which they can. You know, now Durant, you look around the league, Durant going to Phoenix. You know, that's pretty formidable. When you put him with Devin Booker. So if Phoenix can start to get rolling now that they have KD, so long as he's present and healthy, that could be formidable. Because I said it a few moments ago, right now Denver looks like the class of the West. Five-game lead at the midweek over Memphis for this top spot in the conference. Jokic is out of his mind. 25-11-10 this year are his averages. Added what you're getting from Aaron Gordon, Michael Porter, uh, Jamal Murray. This Denver team is legit. And right now, they're the best in the West. But you'll have teams, for example, a Dallas. Can't be ruled out. Sacramento has played well with some of the young talent they have. I mentioned Phoenix especially. Hadn't played so great, but now you add KD there. You know, the West top right now with Denver and it's bottom heavy, but a team like Phoenix starts to wake up and get rolling, it could be a problem. Then you look in the East. 
you know, obviously this is a different Brooklyn team, but the Knicks are playing well. The Celtics outright are playing like the best team in the league. The, uh, the Bucks are on their heels for that top spot. They beat Boston a couple nights ago in overtime. Giannis is just, it, the guy is superhuman. 32 points a game to go along with 12 boards and over five assists. I mean, that's complete basketball. But when you look at this Boston team, Tatum, Brown, Smart. I love Derek White. I'm a big Malcolm Brogdon guy. Mike Muscala's played well. I mean, and they play well together. It's not a me team. It's an us team. You can really say the same thing about Milwaukee, which would be no surprise why they're 1-2 right now. Yeah, Philadelphia might throw a scare. The Knicks, Cleveland. You know, and again, I'm saying Brooklyn won't be ignored with with some of the talent that they still possess. But you're probably looking right now. Boston, Milwaukee, Denver, right? They're at the top for a reason. Could you get a sneak attack from a Philly, a Dallas, the Knicks, a late surge against Atlanta, something of that ilk? Perhaps. Crazier things have happened. Golden State, depending on how the rest of the season shapes out there. But those are your, your the three teams, and rightfully so, that have the most talent. They play the best together as a unit. And they're 1-2, and in the case of Denver, the top team in the West. It's been a fun NBA season. It really has. And I don't say that just from the perspective of being a Knicks fan. You watch a lot of the talent across the league. There's good games on every night. It's the same thing in the NHL. And I'll tell you what, and we'll get more into this as the weeks go on with obviously baseball starting. Pitchers and catches are reported. College basketball, conference championship season is coming up. That's one of the best times. You got a Kansas Baylor matchup this weekend. I mean, just from a college basketball perspective, just to look at the landscape, top 16 reveal comes out this Saturday. I was listening live again uh, this Saturday, the 18th at 12:30. You're going to see the, how the committee ranks. Then we'll get into conference championship week, which is a couple weeks away. You look at the Atlantic 10, that tournament starts in Brooklyn, March 7th. The ACC back in Greensboro, North Carolina, March 7th. The Big East is going to be at the Garden, March 8th start. Fun tournament each year in Charlotte, the Big South, that starts March 1st. The Ivy League will be in Princeton. They go straight. Uh, it's a four-team tournament, semis, and then championship. March 11th. Always action-packed in the Ivy League. You get the local MAC as well. March 7th down in the boardwalk in Atlantic City. Might have to take a trip. The MAC tournament's always fun. Maybe I could get down there with my wife and daughter for a game. That might be a fun little trip. That, uh, down on that boardwalk at the convention center. You see some good basketball when you go down there, too. I guess I could go to Barclays for the A-10 tournament. 
ACC tournament when they were alternate. I know that I know the old school ACC folks didn't like the ACC championship coming up to Barclays because it's more of a Carolina thing, Carolina Virginia, and I get it. Believe me, I get the the history and the lineage of it. But for me, it was cool, especially with Notre Dame playing in the ACC. Now Notre Dame is absolutely horrid this year, um, so they're not going anywhere. Um, but conference tournament time is big, folks, and I'm going to have you covered here because I'm I'm watching every single game that I can. I mean, Pac-12. If you've watched UCLA play this year, Jamie Jockes, Jalen Clark, Tiger Campbell. If you haven't heard of freshman Adem Bona yet, the kid from Nigeria, 6'10", unbelievable wingspan. He gives a presence that not many teams in the country can match. And he's only a freshman. This, I'm telling you, this UCLA team is going to be problematic come tournament time. You know, I keep alternating... The, my my personal top five this year for the five best teams I've seen. Now, Alabama right now is the number one team in the country. That's that, They're my number one. I've alternated them with Houston all year long. My favorite player in the country is Marcus Sasser from Houston. But the team that I've loved right from the beginnings, really Houston and Alabama, but I'm on Nate Oates in Alabama. Man, they played like a contender all year. They got wins over Michigan State and Houston. Houston when they were number one, Arkansas and Auburn. Brandon Miller's a top candidate for player of the year. Mark Sears is one of the best pure guards in basketball as well. Purdue, I know, lately has been kind of, you know, trudging around. But Zach Eady, Braden Smith, this is a team that is national title good when clicking. I mean, you look Gonzaga, Duke, Ohio State, Michigan State twice, and victories over Iowa. They're 6-2 and two in games decided by eight points or less. Yeah, that, that's a that's a Purdue team that I'm buying, just like Arizona. I've been high on Arizona, the depth that they have all year. I mean, five players averaging in double figures. Wins over Indiana, Creighton, Tennessee, UCLA, USC, San Diego State, who's a real good team. I mean, there's so much to go through as tournament season approaches with these conference tournaments and then beyond when the brackets are revealed. It's going to be fun stuff. Now you look at some of the teams that are even outside my own personal top five, Kansas State, North Carolina State. Turkavian Smith, if you haven't seen this kid play, you got to watch a North Carolina State game. The sophomore is unreal. Virginia, you can't ever count out Tony Bennett, especially late in the season come tournament time. I like Auburn, Bruce Pearl. When they're physical, they can beat anyone. But if they're sleepwalking, they're gone. Indiana, Trace Jackson Davis. I mean, what more can this kid do? And again, Mike Woodson proving. Guy's a great coach. Got Indiana playing well. Iowa State's got a real good team. And don't forget about Rutgers. Playing great basketball. I'm telling you, this is going to be a hell of a conference tournament season. We'll have it pegged throughout right here on Sports Today with Peter J. We can do live check-ins when the tournament starts as well. And then obviously when March Madness begins. Great show. Really appreciate it. Those of you who are tweeting me instead of me messaged throughout. It was fun. Same time, same place next week right here on Podbean Live, 11 a.m. East Coast start. And again, if you can't make it live, I see the, the downloads increasing. That's great. It means you're listening. Um, post-production, Spotify, Samsung, TuneIn, iHeart. We've got you covered everywhere. Google as well. So Sports Today with Peter J. You type it into your search engine. It pops up. Uh, all over the place. And don't forget to subscribe 
Twitter as well, at PeterJM, up-to-date information. And you can send me messaging as well. Uh, anything you need at any time will keep you up to date. And again, couldn't have had the success of this radio program without you, the listeners. I greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you all next Saturday. Have a good one, folks. Enjoy the college hoops. Sports Today with Peter J.